The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6. We will this morning, by God's grace, complete chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, for which you can all celebrate Thanksgiving because it seems like we've been in Luke chapter 6 for quite some time now. This morning we're going to look at verses 46 through 49. I had a preaching professor one time that said, if you can't be good, be brief. I've always thought that was good advice. I'm going to try to hold to that uh, this morning. You can determine which, which way it goes. Listen as Jesus, or as Luke, concludes recording to us what Jesus said in this sermon. Jesus speaking said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation when the stream broke against it immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great this is the word of the Lord for us this morning let's pray together God you are gracious and kind You have given us all we need for life and godliness. You have given us all we need to be redeemed, to be reconciled to you and your son Jesus. And his death and resurrection and his bloodshed for our sins. And you've told us that it's by grace that we're saved. It's a gift from you to be received, not to be earned by our works. And yet we're responsible before you to live in obedience. So as we turn our attention to your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would make these things clear to us, that you would allow us to look into your word like it's a mirror, that we might see our own reflection accurately this morning, that we might not be deceived about who we are and where we stand with you, but that we might see with clarity where we are and who we are and where we stand with you. In either case, Lord, that we might leave this place walking with you, walking in obedience to you, walking secure in our faith. For we pray that that would be the result by the power of your spirit and for your glory, O God. Amen. I don't know if the name Dennis Rader rings a bell to you or not. It's been quite some time since his name was in the news. I guess about a decade or so ago. Dennis Rader was a man from Wichita, Kansas, who was a member of Christ Lutheran Church there in Wichita. I have a a news article that I ran across not long after the story about Dennis Rader broke. And I'll just read it to you, and maybe as I read the story, you'll 
remember some of the details of it. It's a story from the AP. The Reverend Michael Clark thought he knew Dennis Rader pretty well. He was the guy who lit the candles, who fixed the sound system, and seemed to spend almost as much time at church as the pastor did. So it was almost too much for Clark to bear when police announced that Raider was the man known as the BTK killer who stood accused of strangling 10 people to death. I was dumbfounded. I was bewildered. I was shocked, the pastor said, recalling how he stood distraught in the shower Sunday morning nearly two days after learning the news. It's not possible, not the dentist that I knew. Pastor Clark, 61 years old, came to Wichita four years prior to this to lead the Christ Lutheran Church and fast became familiar with Dennis Rader. He was a hard worker. He was a husband. He was the father of two. He was a devoted volunteer in the congregation. He'd been active on the church council. He had been elected by his peers to serve and ascended to the board's presidency the previous January. Clark said, I could always call on Dennis if I needed some help. Raider was a friendly guy, conversing lightly and jokingly with the pastor on regular occasions. And so the news that came to Christ Lutheran's door on that Friday afternoon from the lips of detectives was quite unbelievable. They said they were looking for evidence in the, in the BTK serial murder case and that Dennis Raider was a suspect, Clark said. And I was just totally floored. I, I sat there for about five minutes just trying to figure out what he said. Authorities were led to the church by a computer disc that, said, that they said the BTK killer had sent to the TV station. It apparently contained some sort of an electronic imprint that was from the church computer. Pastor Clark said, I, I don't have the privilege of assuming that he's guilty. I have to stand there with him and help him through this, whatever the outcome. The pastor said he does not feel betrayed or deceived or hurt by Raider. And here's something that's interesting. As for the sins he's accused of, the pastor said, quote, we all walk in sin. What a horrifying story horrifying story. Dennis Rader, besides being a brutal murderer, was a spiritual fraud. He was a fake. He was a, a blazing hypocrite. He had created this whole, this whole image that had fooled his pastor and had fooled his entire church family, apparently. If you read into the story, even his own family. And all of it was an illusion. None of it was reality. The reality of his life was completely different. It was dark. It was vile. It was demonic. And yet if you had gone into Christ Lutheran Church on any given Sunday prior to that, you probably would have never known. Jesus has been addressing the issue for which that is a, a massive example all throughout Luke chapter 6. The problem that has always existed 
with his followers or within his followers from the time that he walked the earth until right now. And that is the problem that within the, any given crowd, there are people who are genuine followers of his, and there were there are fakes. There are frauds. There are imposters. There are those who have created an outward image that they belong to him, but who in fact are not believers at all. And sometimes the mirage can be very, very convincing. And it is to that issue that Jesus has been speaking in Luke chapter 6. And as he concludes this sermon, he gives us yet another illustration that points us to this reality. And he gives it to us in very vivid, easy-to-grasp sort of language. Before we sort of dive into the text, I want to just put out a couple of disclaimers and reminders as we sort of walk through this that I think they're important for you to sort of hang in the back of your head as we work through this text so that you're not confused or so that you don't misunderstand and think I'm saying something that I'm not saying or worse, that Jesus is saying something that he's not saying. Let me say very clearly, you and I and anyone else who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not saved by our good works. There is no way for a human being to be reconciled to their creator by doing good. The debt of our sin is too great. We could spend our entire lives trying to earn God's favor by good works, and we would always fall short. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul makes this exceedingly clear when he says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is what? It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that nobody can boast. So we're not saved by our good works. That is clear. What the Bible does teach, though, is that we are saved for good works. That though we're not saved by our works, we are saved for good works. And the very same text in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 10, Paul follows that up by saying, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? We're created in Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before him that we should walk in them. So we need to make clear, we're not saved by our good works, but we are saved unto or for good works. We are saved to do good works. Another way of saying that is once we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the natural result of our life is, is behavior that reflects the commitment of our faith. It reflects the Lord Jesus and his character in our own lives. So though good works can't save us, though obedience to the Lord doesn't save us, it does validate the reality of our faith. I think that's a fair conclusion. And we saw that last week in the illustration that Jesus gave just prior to this that we, that we looked at with, about a tree and its fruit. And a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. That trees bear, you know, fruit that's alike what their root is. A, a, an apple tree bears apples and a lemon tree bears lemons and you're not going to expect to find apples on a lemon tree and such. A good tree bears good fruit. When you are a good tree, when you're rooted deeply in the Lord Jesus Christ, inevitably what's going to come out of your life is behavior that's good that reflects that because that's who you are. You've been changed at the core of who you are, and that's going to show up in your life. And the opposite is true as well. So just as we think through this text this morning, we remember we're not saved by our good works. We are saved for good works. And another thing we need to recall about salvation is this, that salvation, when we come to know Jesus Christ, our salvation really takes on a couple of different aspects, or there are, are different parts of salvation if we want to parse it all out. Um, you could say, and the Bible does phrase it this way, you could say uh, 
uh, I have been saved. You could say, I am saved. And you could say, I'm being saved. The Bible casts salvation in all three tenses. That there's a sense in which if you're a Christian, you've been saved. And there's a sense in which you're being saved. And there's a sense in which one day you're going to be saved. You say, well, how in the world does that make any sense? How can all three be true? Well, it's the Bible's way of laying out for us parts of salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are the three theological words we can use. I'm just going to not dig too far down into this rabbit hole, but give you a few texts to sort of hang this thought on. Ephesians 2.8, we just saw, for it's by grace you've been saved, right? Through faith. What's the tense? It's the past tense. So Paul is speaking to believers, and he's saying, it's by grace you've been saved. Something has already happened in, in regards to your salvation. That's called justification. The moment a person uh, believes the gospel and commits their heart, repents of their sin, and, and entrusts their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, something immediately happens. It's called justification. The Lord saves them, in a sense. Their sins are washed away, and, and from a legal perspective, they are declared righteous before God. Their sins nailed to the cross of Jesus, his, his perfect righteousness imputed to their account, if you will. So in a moment, they're justified. They're legally no longer guilty before the Lord of their sin because it's been paid for at the cross of Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. And at the moment a person repents and trusts Christ, they're justified. That transaction takes place. But in that moment, something else happens. A process begins to play out in their life. A process called sanctification, theologically, but it's, it's, it's really a word that describes what we were looking at last week. This process where the Spirit of God indwells us and begins to transform us into the image of Jesus. So what we've been declared as legally now becomes the, the gradual reality of our experience because God is from the inside of us changing us, making us more like Christ. He's sanctifying us. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are what? We're being saved. It is the power of God. So we could speak of salvation in terms of sanctification. We are being saved. That is to say that God is transforming us daily into the image of Jesus. That happens to everybody who's justified. But there's a sense in which we can say also, I will be saved. Matthew 28, verses 12 and following say this, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, what? will be saved. So there's a sense in which our salvation, at least an aspect of it, has taken place in the past. There's a sense in which our salvation, an aspect of it, is playing out daily in our lives right now. And there's a day coming when we are going to leave this planet, leave this experience, and we're going to go be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our sin, once and for all, is going to be wiped away, no longer a part of our experience, and we are going to be made like him in perfection. Not the same perfection in the sense that we're God's, but perfect in the sense that we no longer sin and that that struggle is over. It's called glorification. And so when we're thinking in terms of salvation, we can see it cast in these different ways, and that's because there are different aspects to what's happening to us and in us when Christ is transforming us. And it is to that middle piece, sanctification, that Jesus is speaking in this section of Luke 6, in the previous illustration he used, and in this illustration that we're looking at this morning. His focus is on sanctification. It's that process by which God is transforming us internally by the power of his spirit into the image of Jesus. 
And it's important to note that any time upon sort of along that process, we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about trajectory. So when we come to know Christ, he doesn't make us perfect in a moment. He doesn't even make us perfect in successive moments. Our lives begin to take on a trajectory toward Christ-likeness. Everybody who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that process of sanctification takes place. You begin to be transformed in the image of Jesus at some rate, at some speed. And if you look back over the years of your life, you'll see that playing out. And if you don't see that playing out, there's reason to be very concerned. And it's that theme that Jesus is continuing to develop here in this text, in this part of his sermon. And last week, we saw that genuine salvation shows up in a life that bears godly fruit. But it's not just the only way that salvation shows up in bearing godly fruit. He's going to tell us today that genuine salvation also shows up in a life that's committed to obedience to his word. Now, you could look at that as a subset of bearing godly fruit, or you could look at it as a sort of a, a, a separate issue or point that he's making. Either way, it's the same. The issue is obedience to the Word of God. And Jesus is making clear that genuine saving faith is going to result in a life that's committed to obedience to the Word of God. There's no way around it, no way over it, under it. That's the reality. And he begins this by asking a question so clear, so direct and yet so piercing. He simply says to the crowd that day, and really to you and me, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's a simple question to understand, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Clearly, Jesus has noticed a problem in the crowd that's gathered and has begun to follow him and is listening to his sermons. That crowd, as we've been watching in Matthew's gospel, has been growing progressively. It's been drawing people from all over the region to come out to hear what he has to say. So no doubt, when he's delivering this message, there's a large crowd of people, a whole mix of folks from all sorts of backgrounds from all over the region that have come to listen and all are responding in different ways, but Jesus is noticing a trend that's happening in the group, that there is within that group a people, a subset of people who are calling him Lord, that is to say, they're identifying themselves with him, but they don't obey what he's teaching. If you were to talk to them about their faith, if you were to pull them aside and ask them, are you one of Jesus' people? They would affirm, yes, I'm one of Jesus' people. They would claim to know him, most likely. They would claim to be his disciples. But if you look closely at their lives, what you'll see is they don't obey Christ. They don't obey what he's teaching. They're not concerned about holiness. They're not particularly concerned about obedience. They still do whatever they want in their lives. They still live however they want to. Their values and their ethics look just like the world around them. Nothing has really been transformed in the way that they live and the way they conduct themselves in the world around them. And it's important to remember that Jesus is not speaking largely to a, a pagan crowd of atheists on this day. He's speaking largely to people who are outwardly religious. From the outside, they, they, they appeared religious. They appeared faithful. But in reality, all these people in this crowd were not the same. There were some who were truly, genuinely justified in being sanctified and will one day be glorified. But there was also a group within the group that had been terribly deceived. They believed themselves to be with Christ, but they were very, very lost. And it's to that, 
it's to that issue that Jesus turns his attention here and he exposes the problem in a very vivid sort of a way but a simple question right why do you call me Lord Lord but you don't do what I tell you to do could that question have ever been levied by Christ into your life has there ever been a time or a season in your life when you can imagine the Lord asking you that question why do you call me Lord but you don't do what I tell you I suspect we've all had moments, maybe even seasons. But the people to whom Jesus is speaking here, speaking to here, it's the pattern. It's not a moment. It's not a season. It's the pattern. It's people who identify with him but don't obey him. They don't embrace his values. They don't affirm his ethics. They, they live like the world. They talk like the world. They entertain themselves like the world. There's nothing distinguishable about them from the world. Yet, they identify with him. They come and they listen to his preaching. They affirm the things that he's saying. They're doing religious things. They may even know the Bible, or they certainly know what he's teaching. The Bible wasn't written at the time. In our day, that would be the reflection, though. But all of it is, is a sham. It's all a sham. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 7 this same portion of Jesus' sermon. He includes a piece right before it that Luke doesn't record. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Matthew 20, or chapter 7, verse 21, I can, if you don't have it, that's fine. I'm just going to read it to you. Just before he talks about this, this illustration of the house and the foundation, here's what he says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That is to say, the one who obeys. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew's here explaining to us a little bit more about who this crowd is that Jesus is talking about, these people who were calling him Lord, Lord. They're disobedient people. But they're people who have done a lot of things and they're doing them in his name, or so they believe. And he lets us know a horrifying reality that some such people will make it all the way to the end. And on the day of judgment, will stand before him and try to justify themselves that way. And they'll hear the most dreadful words any human being could ever hear. Apart from me, I don't know you. I don't know you. Jesus uses that terminology an awful lot in John's gospel. He talks about him being the shepherd and his people being the sheep. Do you recall that illustration? And he will say regularly, my sheep know my voice. I call to them and they follow me. It's just a simple illustration of how it works. Those who belong to him, he speaks to them. They hear his voice and they follow. That is to say they obey him. They do what he says to do. But not so with some. Not so with these to whom Jesus is speaking on this day. And so he paints for us an illustration that's really easy to imagine in your mind. It's a, an illustration that's quite striking. It's a fictional story. It's just a, a, one of Jesus' teaching tools, right? A fictional story that helps him explain something that, that may not be easy to understand on the surface and very easy to understand terms. Everybody in his day would have seen somebody build a house. And so that's the illustration he uses, a construction image. It's a story that he gives us here in this, in this portion of, of his sermon about two builders who build two houses, and they build them in two different ways. 
And after the houses are built, we, we see that in this story, a relentless storm comes through, and that generates a large flood. And that flood sweeps through the neighborhood, and one of the houses is absolutely devastated and destroyed, and the other withstands the storm. It's secure. And in his story, the two houses have a lot of things in common. They, they, they're both in the same location, and we, we get that because they're both hit by the same storm and the same flood. It seems that from above ground, they look similar. Perhaps if you were driving by after construction of the homes had been completed, uh, you wouldn't have noticed a difference between the two houses. But there was a very significant difference between the two houses, wasn't there? Very significant difference. It was unseen to the naked eye, but it was critical. One builder took the time before he started going up with his structure to do what? What does he tell us? To dig deep and lay a foundation on the rock. If, raise your hand if you've seen a house being built. Yeah, okay, you've seen a house being built, right? Things haven't changed all that dramatically since Jesus' day. Maybe the technology and the tools and the materials, but the process is still quite similar. I remember Danielle and I have had two homes and we've watched both of them come up and, and, and I remember being excited about the house getting built and I just couldn't wait for the framing to start, right? You want to see the, the walls go up and you want to start imagining yourself in the house, right? Um, but before that happens, it takes a long time to get the land cleared and to get the, the trucks out there to dig up you know, all the, the trenches for your foundation and you got to wait for somebody to come in and lay rebar that sticks up and lay, you know, blocks and then they come in and they pour cement or, or concrete down in there and make it a nice, firm, strong... There's, there's nothing sexy about a foundation, right? There's just nothing exciting about that. We got real estate agents in the room. I guarantee you when people are shopping for homes, you rarely hear somebody ask you, can you tell me about this house's foundation? I really want to know about the foundation. I normally want to know about how many bedrooms and how many bathrooms and does it have a granite in the kitchen and, you know, all those cool things that are shiny to the eye. But a foundation is critical to a house. If you've lived in Charleston very long, you know that as you've watched hurricanes blow through and blow out, right? What happens to a house that has a faulty foundation when a hurricane blows through? It's devastated. It doesn't stand. Foundations are critical. They're super important to a house. But apparently, one builder in Jesus' illustration understood that reality, and so he took the time to do the work to dig deep and to dig all the way down to the rock. And he's not talking about rocks and boulders here. He's talking about the bedrock, the, the big slab of bedrock that ran underneath all of the sandy soil in that part of the, the, of the world. And they would dig down, and, and it would be there on the bedrock, the immovable, secure bedrock, that they would start to, to erect the house and build a firm foundation there. But the other builder does what? He says, ah, nothing sexy about a foundation. I want to get right to building this house up. So he starts on the ground, at ground level, erecting his house. It's a dumb idea, isn't it, Tim? But he did it. Matthew says he built on the sand. Unlike bedrock, the ground and the soil and the sand, is, it's, not, it's not firm, it's not secure, it doesn't hold, it's, it's unstable, it's loose, it's movable. And though at the end of the day when these two houses are completed, the end result looked very much the same. In fact, the two houses couldn't have been more differ, different. One was safe and one was secure, and the other was a disaster waiting to happen. And when 
the devastating storm comes, the difference between the two houses is revealed. The house built on the firm foundation, on the rock, was not shaken. The house that was built on the ground, that was on the sand, Jesus tells us, it immediately fell. It immediately fell. It was a total loss. And the reason was because it didn't have a strong, secure foundation. When the river overflowed and swept through, it was gone in a moment. That's an easy sort of parable to imagine in your mind. But you and I understand Jesus isn't interested in giving us construction advice or home building advice here, right? He's talking about something much more. He's making a spiritual analogy that's very powerful and it's very challenging. And you say, well, what is that analogy? It's about the role of obedience and faith. These two builders have some things in common if we're looking at it from a spiritual perspective. They're people who've come to Jesus. That's who he's talking about. People who've come to Jesus, they both hear his words. They're both hanging around him in the crowd. They're both listening. They're both to some degree embracing what he's saying or believing that, what he's teaching. They're identifying themselves with him. We find that out because they're, they're calling him Lord, Lord. They're identifying themselves with him. But there's one major difference between these two groups of people and the two builders that illustrate them. One group of people has heard what he said, has believed it, and is obeying. The other group has heard what he's saying and to some degree believed it, but they're not obeying. It's the only distinction in the story is obedience versus not obedience. And that's the, the issue Jesus is getting at here. Genuine saving faith produces obedience in a believer. That is a spiritual reality. That is a part of sanctification. That the Spirit of God transforms us on the inside where we no longer desire to sin, we desire to obey Christ. We don't do it perfectly, we never do it perfectly, but there's a trajectory that begins in our life where we long to obey Christ, where we want to walk with Him, where we want to do what pleases Him. And when we don't, when we fall short, we know it, we feel it, we grieve it. We confess it, we repent of it. We seek His forgiveness and His restoration. But obedience becomes the heartbeat of our lives. And that's the symbol that Jesus is speaking to here. The houses symbolize people's spiritual lives. Hearing and obeying is akin to digging deep and building on the foundation. Hearing and not obeying is like building a house on the ground. It's insufficient. The wise builder built on the rock, the words of Christ, on hearing and doing. He understands it's not enough to hear what Jesus has to say. He understands it's not enough to just believe in some sort of generic intellectual sense that that's not enough. He understands that it's not enough to embrace uh, a gospel that, that includes just hearing and understanding and believing. He understands, the wise builder, that there's more to it than that. That the genuine saving faith involves hearing, it involves understanding, and it involves believing, but it also involves submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord who has the right to rule over us and seeking to live a life in obedience to his rule. The person who's done that is committed to obeying Christ. He understands that he's known that I'm, they understand that they're not the Lord of their own lives anymore, that Christ is. That life isn't about doing whatever pleases me. That life is now about doing what pleases him. That's the wise builder. They're committed to obedience. He hears my words and does them. 
That word does is a verb. It's in the present active participle, which just simply means that it, it indicates ongoing action in the present. It's the person who continuously is obeying the Lord. That's the traje trajectory of his life. That's the trajectory of his heart is to know Christ and to obey him and to walk in his instruction and to submit to his lordship. It's to understand that when Jesus teaches, it isn't just to intellectually stimulate us, but it's to call us to obey. And the other builder is foolish. He builds on the sand, believing only hearing is sufficient. And there are an awful lot of folks in our day that are just like in Jesus' crowd that day, aren't there? There are plenty of folks who that's the extent of their faith. That's what they think. They think that just hearing Christ is enough, just giving sort of a mental, uh, a mental agreement with what he has to say is akin to saving faith. They think going to church and listening to people like me drone on in sermons somehow saves them. They think that reading the Bible and affirming that they believe certain things in the Bible is enough. They believe that giving money to the church or attending Bible studies or memorizing verses is sufficient. What they don't do is submit to Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. What they don't do is commit to a life of obedient service to him. For them, it's just a Sunday thing. Church is a Sunday thing. But they retain control of their lives. When they're making decisions, they, they don't consult the word of God. They consult their own wisdom. When they're establishing their social behavior, God's word isn't even considered. Obedience to Christ in those realms of their life doesn't even register on the charts. But to most observers, they can be, at least on the outside, appearing to be good, genuine Christian people. Dennis Rader was a master at this. A master. But the reality is they're self-deceived hypocrites. That's the point Jesus is making. All throughout the New Testament, it teaches over and over again that genuine saving faith produces obedience in the life of a man or a woman. It produces that. Give you a couple of examples that we can look at. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Maybe you've read this before. Another good illustration of this. James says this. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He'll be blessed in what he does or what he's doing. James makes clear the same exact point. It's not enough just to hear. It's not enough to come and listen. It's not even enough to agree mentally. The blessed man is the one who both hears He's a hearer of the word, and what else? He's a doer, right? He hears and does. That's the same thing as saying he hears and obeys. And I love this illustration. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not a picture of beauty first thing in the morning when I wake up. And maybe you are. Maybe you're one of those people that just rolls out of bed looking like you belong on some magazine cover. It's not the case for me. My eyes are all puffy. My hair is everywhere, Right? It looks worse than you could imagine trying to actually make it. You've got all these 
stuff going on in your face, like lines and stuff. Do you ever wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror and go, man, I got work to do, right? Like, before anybody sees me, before I go out in public, I've got some, something needs to change here. I've got some things to do. James is painting that image in his text. He's saying, can you imagine someone getting up in the morning and looking at themselves in the mirror and seeing all the things that need fixing and looking at it and going, eh, what the heck, and just walking away? Putting on clothes, getting on with his work day. Can you imagine doing that? Waking up in the morning, seeing everything that's wrong, and just not doing anything about it, just getting dressed and going on to work, going about your day. You don't shower, you don't do your hair, you don't brush your teeth, you got the lines on your face, puffy eyes, all that stuff. What would happen? People would look at you and say, that's ridiculous. Nobody would do something that stupid. James says that's how foolish it is to look into the mirror of God's word and have it expose all of the sin in your life and you not obey it and do something about it. It's that silly. It's that ridiculous. It's that foolish. That's the man who hears and doesn't do. It's the same picture Jesus is is painting. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. To the pure, the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now here's the piece. They profess to know God. Let's say this part with me. But they deny him by their works. People who profess to know God, that sounds a lot like people who call him Lord, Lord, but don't do what he says. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The same reality, the same reality. John, 1 John chapter 2, he writes this in verse 3, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now John couldn't be more clear about this. He says, whoever says, I know him, speaking of Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Is a liar. It's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. To claim to know Jesus and to not obey him is to be a liar. It's to lie to yourself. It's to convince yourself that you're something that you absolutely are not. Those who truly know Christ will walk like he walked. There's a second piece to this that we won't spend hardly any time on. I just want to point it out to you this, that not only does genuine saving faith result in a life of obedience, increasing obedience to Christ, but a life of increasing obedience to Christ is the best source of security for salvation. The storm and this flood in Jesus' story here represents spiritually the judgment that's to come. And I think everybody who's associated with a Christian church in some way or the other understands that, that the God who made us is one day going to call us to an account and that there's going to be a day coming when we face judgment for how we've lived our lives. That all of us are going to stand before our maker and give an account. And it's going to be one of two things. We're going to either hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest, or we're going to hear... Depart from me, for I never knew you, and face the wrath of God that's due for our sin to get the just penalty that we've earned. The theme of God's judgment runs all throughout the text. Nobody spoke more about it than Christ himself. 
But when that day comes for you, when that day comes for me, there's only two possible outcomes. One, our faith will stand and we'll spend eternity with Jesus forever. Or like that second house, our faith is going to be exposed as fraudulent self-deception and be blown away like that second house. I think most people who are associated with Christianity, want to, they know judgment is coming, but they want to find some sense of security or some sense of assurance that they'll be okay when that day comes. Where do you look for that? Where do you look to find some sense of security that you, or that you belong to Christ, that when judgment comes, you'll be the house that stands? Do you look to some past profession? Do you look to your baptism? Do you look to your church attendance record? Do you look at your religious activity factor in your life? Do you look at the, the good things that you're doing for other people? Do you look at any of those things? None of those things are indicators of genuine saving faith. Dennis Rader did them all. Every single one of those things. There's one place to look for solid assurance of your faith. That's to look right now at your life and ask the question, do I see an increasing pattern of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that the trajectory of my heart and my life? Do I see that playing out? Not necessarily this day or even this week, but can I look back a few months? Can I look back six months? Can I look back a year, five years? And do I see an upward trajectory of obedience to Christ in my life? Do I want to please him still? Do I mourn when I sin? Am I drawn to confession and repentance because I want to walk with Christ and I want to do what pleases him? If that's the reality of your life, that's the best assurance you can find because that's the reality of the story that Jesus tells with his own lips. The difference between the two builders and the difference between the two sets of people is that one group, that's the reality, and the other group, it's not. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is to say that you've come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner who has rebelled against your maker and that what you've earned from that is eternal hell, God's judgment for your sin. That's what you deserve. And you've come to realize that your only hope is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God's only son, came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross, that he died in your place, taking on the penalty for your sin, shedding his blood so that you don't have to shed yours. That he's enduring for you the full wrath of God on your sin so that you don't have to. And that you've come to the foot of that cross and you have bowed before him in confession and repentance. You asked him to forgive you and you've bowed before his lordship saying, Lord Jesus, you're my only hope. From this day forward, my life belongs to you. If that's the reality of your life this morning and you can look back over the trajectory of your life over the last however many years and you begin to see, you know what? I don't obey Christ perfectly but I'm obeying him more than I did a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. I see that the transformation taking place in my heart. The Spirit of God is making me more like Christ. I'm not there yet, but I'm making progress and I'm on the way. If you see that in your life, that's the evidence that you're the, the good house that's built on the right foundation. You don't have to fear what's coming in the judgment. If you look at your life and you don't see that reality, 
then the text before you in Luke chapter 6 is a mirror that you have to deal with. You have to ask the question, am I for real? Am I for real? Have I really built my, my, my life on the, the, the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word? Or am I just a fake? Maybe a good one. It's fooled a lot of people. My church, my family, wherever. I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer it for me. But you have to answer it for you. If Dennis Rader displays anything for us, he displays the depth that deception can go. That someone who's literally murdering people by strangulation in the night can fool everybody into believing that they're a faithful Christian by day. And if that story illustrates anything else, it illustrates a pastor who doesn't understand that either. Because the right answer that he should have given the reporter about the sins of Dennis Rader is not, we all walk in sin. The answer is, if this is true, then his life displays that he doesn't know Jesus Christ at all. That he's a pagan who's serving his own father, the devil. And he has nothing to do with Christ. That's the right answer. What's the right answer for you? Let's bow our head and close our eyes and just give a moment of reflection on this very, very serious issue, this very serious illustration. As we just reflect on our lives for a moment here, let that that question of Christ sort of dwell in your minds. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Well, you don't do what I say. Lord, these words are hard. They pierce us. Because when we look in this mirror and consider our own selves, we're immediately struck by how far short we all fall from your glory. We know how sin dogs us and what a battle it is daily with temptation in our lives. And we know how frequently we fall and how frequently we fail and how frequently we get it wrong. But Lord, I pray in these moments that you would give us each one a clear view of our own lives and our own hearts that we wouldn't be deceived about who we are. Lord, for those who look at themselves this morning and even look back over the track record of the time that they've claimed to be walking with you and they don't see that trajectory of obedience, I pray that in these moments, Lord, you would, you would confirm in their hearts whether they're yours or not. And if not, you would draw them to repentance and faith this morning, that today they would submit to your lordship, that they would bow before your cross, giving you, their lives to you to rule and to reign over them. And Lord, for those who look at their own lives this morning and see, yes, a battle with sin, but at the same time, a trajectory of obedience, they see evidence that you've been transforming them into the image of Jesus. And in their hearts, they long to obey. 
And when they fall short, they mourn over that sin and they confess it and they repent and they turn to you. Find grace and mercy. For those for whom that's the reality, Lord, give them a confident assurance of their faith. Help them to see this morning that there's no better indication that they're yours than that. Don't let us be deceived, Lord. Let us walk in truth and in obedience, for we pray it in your name. Amen.